Alright everyone, well, hope you are all doing well and hope you had all, all had a good time in your discussion groups talking about our passage for this evening. Let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Father God, we are so thankful, Lord, for the truths that we are looking at this evening. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that it is your inspired word given to us by the Apostle Paul. And I just thank you, Lord, that it's given us the opportunity to just dig deep into your gospel and the truth uh, in the gospel and the salvation that it represents for each of us who call upon the name of Christ. So, Father, I just pray that as we look into it, uh, this evening, Lord, that we would be reminded new just of these good things and that we would be transformed and given just a desire and a thankfulness and a worship, Lord, to a God who has given us such a great gift. So we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I trust that you all had a good discussion time, and I hope that just the overall study that we've been able to have over the past few weeks and that we'll continue to have is a beneficial time to slow down and meditate on the truth that we call the gospel. Now, as I'm sure you're all learning, the book of Romans can be theologically very dense, but it's also rich and it's a sustenance for our souls to spend time in it. So I'll, I'll open today just by doing a quick recap of what we've talked about thus far from Romans 1, 2, and beginning 3, and then we'll get to our passage for today. So the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had not been to. Oftentimes in the New Testament epistles, you see there is a more direct personal connection between Paul and the recipients of his letters. Sometimes it's a church that he personally was involved with, like Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, or Ephesus, or maybe it's to someone he personally invested in, like Timothy or Titus. In chapter 1 of Romans, we get to hear how Paul chooses to introduce himself to a church that he doesn't know very well. And it's very much a gospel introduction, isn't it? He sees himself as a recipient of the gospel and someone who is called, and that calling is defined by the gospel itself. And furthermore, he sees delivering the gospel message, the good news itself, as his primary duty to the church in Rome. So, for a church that did not have the benefit of an apostle's direct involvement, Paul wanted to ensure that the message of first importance was rock solid in the life of this church. To ensure that the church itself was on solid foundation, Paul's strategy wasn't to review or critique their ministry programs or how their outreach ministry was going or how they did their small groups or what kind of music they played when they gathered together. But his desire was to get there so that he could preach the gospel to them. And we see that in Romans 1. But why would he want to preach the gospel to a church that, by all accounts, seemed to be very commendable? Verse 16, because he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The remainder of chapter 1 tells us that all men are given knowledge of God and are held accountable to honor him and give him thanks, but we are totally depraved, and we do not worship him, earning us the just wrath of God. Then chapter 2 primarily informs us that even those who receive the law of God, God's chosen people, 
those who are given every advantage to worship and praise God, they're just as depraved and also accountable to breaking God's law. And chapter 3 sort of ties up this train of thought that there is essentially no hope. Having set the foundation of man's depravity and our hopelessness, whether it be Gentiles who reject natural revelation or the religious who claim they have the law, all the while pointing fingers while breaking it themselves, all people are hopeless. And uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20 spells it out. And I don't think there's a passage that spells it out more clearly than Romans 3, 9 through 20. So I'll just read that for us and you can follow along in your Bibles as well. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there is no hope, and we've been shown conclusively, decisively, and thoroughly that we are all guilty. But then, near the end of chapter 3, something happens. A ray of light breaks through the darkness, as it were, and the train of Paul's logic takes a sharp turn. Now, in the midst of this hopelessness and this darkness, the righteousness of God is manifested. And that's the emphasis for our passage tonight, righteousness. So for those of you who spent the time to do your exegesis um, homework, there's that section where you have repeated words, right? And righteousness should be right at the top of that list of repeated words. And even more so when you realize that our English words righteous and just or justify they all really come from the same word. So when you see words like justified, just, or justifier, it's referring to the righteousness of God. So righteousness is all over this passage. But the section starts with conjunction, but, which indicates that something is changing here. There's an abrupt shift, because after spending two whole chapters talking about the bad news of our depravity, and our guilt before God, and how we've cut off every avenue, whether ignorance or law-keeping, for us to access the righteousness of God, only one path is revealed. One way emerges, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's read our text for tonight. That's going to be Romans 3, 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here in verse 21, Paul is really resuming his discussion of God's righteousness revealed. And if you recall, that's something that we started discussing all the way back in Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. And that leads us to our first point for this evening, which is the righteousness of God through faith, not law. The righteousness of God through faith, not law. Verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So over the last two and a half chapters, we've been beaten up and brought low, um, where Paul has really dismantled any defense that we might have before God. He's been systematically removing our excuses, removing our blame shifting and our works and our coverings, our comparisons, any confidence that we have in ourselves or self-righteousness to leave us exposed for what we really are. And that's unrighteous and guilty. And that's been necessary because if you've never been convinced that you are unrighteous and guilty, you can't be saved. And that's why Paul goes to such great lengths to make his argument in these first few chapters to confirm for everyone here that without a shadow of a doubt, we are unrighteous and guilty. And that's necessary because self-righteousness is the barrier that keeps the gospel out. Self-righteousness is the barrier that keeps the gospel out. So having torn down our self-righteousness, Paul now shifts to God's righteousness. God's righteousness, Paul states, is manifested apart from the law. So the law here, while it is specifically referencing Old Testament law that the Jewish people received, it generally represents all of our attempts at achieving righteousness apart from God. And you can go to the next slide for this. The law represents our attempts to earn it somehow through our works and merits, or in the case of the Jews, their tradition and their heritage. Now, whereas the Jews had been finding their righteousness in the law, Paul is saying that the opposite, that the righteousness is coming, or rather it has come in a different way, through a different means than the law. And not just for the Jews, we all inherently seek righteousness apart from God. We have in a desire to be right or to be justified, and we're hardwired to get that by working harder and doing more, to doing better, to being more disciplined and to just do the things, and then we will be right. I just need to study harder because then I will do better on my exams and I will be justified or right as a student. Or I just need to put in more hours at the office because then my work will be excellent and I will be justified or right as a worker. Or I just need to do my devotional times more consistently, read my Bible and pray because then I will be justified or right as a Christian. 
And then these things become our law, our confidence, our covering, our claim to righteousness or rightness. Now, the problem isn't that we seek righteousness. That's a good thing. But that we seek our own righteousness through our own means, like our own morality or our own works. But none of these are acceptable to the one person to whom it matters. And that's God himself. Because you see, when, while we see the law as a list of commandments, like a to-do list or a to-don't list, the grand plan of God has the law as more than just a to-do list or a to-don't list. It's more than just instruction. It's actually an indictment. The law is more than instruction. It is an indictment. Indictment that we can't achieve righteousness on our own that we fall short. So the Jews, they treated the law as a sort of ladder with steps that you can access and get closer to God and his righteousness. But God's intention wasn't for the law to be a ladder that you could climb to reach God, but actually a mirror, a mirror that shows us ourselves and specifically that we don't measure up to God's standards and that God's righteousness is actually out reach. Now, fortunately for us, there is a different means. There's a different way, and it's not something that we came up with. The righteousness of God is something that we can only receive from God. The righteousness of God is something that we can only receive from God. Now, Paul tells us here that the law and prophets actually pointed to this other means all along. When Paul uses the term law and prophets, he's essentially using a shorthand to refer to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Paul is saying that the law and prophets, where many of the Jews had placed their confidence and looked to for their righteousness, they bore witness to something else as a means of righteousness, not to themselves, but to something else. The Old Testament had a different manifestation of God's righteousness in view all along. And what is that other means? And I think we all know this. It's faith. That other means to God's righteousness is through faith. And the plan for faith to be our access to the righteousness of God was there from the beginning. Righteousness through faith was not like plan B because we failed plan A and God needed to come up with a different way. Faith was a part of plan A to begin with the whole time. So the law and prophets were not meant to be a means unto themselves, but the text says they bear witness or they testify to something. They served as a teacher or a guide to direct us to the character of God, to show his holiness and who he is, also our insufficiency to keep his standards that we fall short, and ultimately the law and the prophets point us to, and we pick up in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. That's where the law takes us. Now, the amazing good news that we can have righteousness, what our souls long for and desire, and we can have that through faith. Now, let's talk a little, about, a little bit about these words, faith and belief. Faith is more than just like an intellectual assent. Faith is not just saying that Christ existed. 
and that you're in agreement with his teachings. It's not taking the claims of Christ and Christianity and then holding them up and comparing them to every other religious system out there and saying, you know, I think this one I agree with more. This one seems like the best or this one seems right. Uh, and you can go to the, the next point here. Faith is a dependence on something outside of yourself. It takes the trust away from anything to do with you and places it in something, or in this case, someone else. If we keep on reading in the book of Romans, Paul brings in a good example to help us understand, and that's in the example of Abraham. Um, this can help us understand what faith is all about. So specifically, I'm jumping down to chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now it says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what was promised. So who was able to do this? It was God who was able to do it, not Abraham. And remember the context here. This is concerning Abraham having in the promise that God gave him that he would have descendants and be the father of many nations. And he knew he himself could not do it. He knew it. He had long abandoned any hope or prospect of himself achieving what was promised. At this point, he was nearly 100 years old with a barren wife. And if there was any lingering confidence in himself, it was probably gone by the time he was like 70 or so. But yet he was fully convinced that not that he or Sarah were capable, but what God promised God would do. What God promised God would do. And for us, in our context, our faith is believing in Christ, removing all confidence and dependence and trust in ourselves and placing it in Christ, fully convinced that we can be declared righteous through Christ, his death, and his resurrection. We can't do it. Now, is this just for the Jews? We're talking about Abraham here, so does this concern the Gentiles as well? This is not just for the Jews. Because God's righteousness is by faith and not by the law, it is available to all. Because God's righteousness is by faith and not the law, it's available to everyone. Our text says, there is no distinction whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, meaning those who receive the capital L law and those who did not receive it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And guess what? If you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, this righteousness is available to you by faith because there is no distinction. Because there is no distinction, there is no exclusion. Because we all fall short, we are all eligible to receive salvation through faith. The gospel is, I'm going to use a controversial word here, the gospel is inclusive. Inclusive is a buzz, buzzword of the day. And I hate that it means things like being accepting of sin and a lifestyle that's opposed to God now. But the problem is not the word. It's what we use it for. The gospel through faith and not works, not by law, not by merit, this is inclusiveness. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. 
a man or a woman, rich or poor, churchgoer or partier, you are a sinner, right? And if you are a sinner, you can have God's righteousness through one means alone. And that one amazing means is both humbling and freeing at the same time. And that's faith. The gospel is humbling because it treats all of our merits as worthless. Isaiah 64, 6, we all know this. It says, all our deeds are like filthy rags. And that's the best of what we have to offer. And it doesn't matter if you have one filthy rag or a hundred filthy rags. It's still worthless. And that's humbling for someone who has spent their lives accumulating works, accumulating filthy rags. The gospel is freeing because it is completely outside of ourselves. When we give up our attempts to be good enough, then that allows us to be carried by the mercy and grace of God in Christ. And that's our next point for this evening. It's the righteousness of God by his grace in Christ. The righteousness of God by his grace in Christ. Verse 24 and 25 says, and and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, verse 24 says that we are justified. And I think you guys probably discussed the meaning of this word and how to understand it in your groups. To be justified is a legal term. It is to be pronounced not guilty or to be deemed right or counted as righteous, acquitted of the charges that were levied against you. Now, this doesn't mean that you are suddenly without sin in practice, but that you are treated as if you were. Now, what's critical to notice is that being justified here in this passage, it's used as a passive verb. Now, why does that matter? Because it means that someone had to justify us. Someone had to declare us righteous. We don't exist just in a justified state without someone accomplishing that work on our behalf. And that someone is not you and I. This is an act of someone else's grace. It's not something you earn or something that you deserve. Paul emphasizes for us here, it is a gift. It's grace and a gift. It's almost redundant here. If this is something that you are given because of someone else's kindness to you. Now, when someone gives you a gift, by definition, you didn't pay for it. You don't contribute to it. You know, nowadays for wedding registries, everything's online. So for sometimes for larger, more expensive gifts, you'll see this option to contribute to a larger gift alongside some others. And you can just click and say how much you want to contribute. It was really easy. Well, before the internet, we, before we had the luxury of this online option, someone actually had to organize a collection for something like this. Someone had to go around and ask a bunch of different people to contribute that so that you can get the wedding couple a nice honeymoon or something like that. When you're taking the collection, who do you never go to to ask for a contribution? You don't go to the bride or the groom to ask for a contribution. Why? Because the gift is for them. You never go to the couple and say, oh, we really want to send you guys on a nice honeymoon. Do you think you can chip in a few hundred bucks here? 
No, and for the free gift of your justification, you do not make any contribution. And it's not something that you can pay back either. When God justifies you, you do not pay it back with obedience, okay? That's not the transaction that's being made here. God is not bartering with you. I give you righteousness, you give me obedience. That's not how this works. But he's giving you a priceless and precious gift because he loves you. But while the gift is free for the recipient, the gift does come at a cost for the giver. The text says that we receive this gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To redeem means to be bought back, to buy back. The word was often used in conjunction with actually purchasing people um, in a slavery context. So when a slave was sold to someone, there was a price associated with them, and you could purchase or buy that slave's freedom at some cost. And for the portion of the audience that was familiar with Jewish history, this idea of redemption would be connected with God delivering or ransoming his people out of their bondage in Egypt. Now for us, we were owned and we were enslaved by our own sin. We were bound to the punishment and the wrath that our sin deserves. But here, in Christ, we were purchased, we were bought back, we were redeemed. Now, who paid the cost? And what was the cost? Verse 25 continues this for us. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, God put Christ forward as a propitiation. God paid the cost, and the cost was the blood, the life of his son. Propitiation refers to an appeasement of God's wrath through a sacrifice. And specifically here, it points to Christ as that sacrifice that fully satisfies the wrath of God that was intended for us. This was based on the Old Testament sacrificial system where the sins of the people would incur the wrath of God. And then this wrath of God would then symbolically be appeased or satisfied only by the sacrifice and the blood of some animal sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. But here, it's not an animal's blood that satisfies the wrath of God. But whose blood? It's the blood, the Son of God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews clarifies for us that the blood of animals never actually placated God's wrath. They were never a sufficient propitiation. But similar to the law, those sacrifices were meant to show us our sinfulness and point us to the one true sacrifice, the one sacrifice that is sufficient for all. God's wrath was intended for us. It should be our blood on the mercy seat. It should be our bodies on the cross. The wrath of God was locked and loaded and the crosshairs aimed squarely at you. But in his divine mercy, Christ traded places with you so that the wrath of God would still find its appeasement or its propitiation, but yet you would live. This is not a propitiation by some third party. It was one put forward by God himself. The same one who is your judge, jury, and executioner is also the one who offers up his own son that you might be pardoned. 
And that's the gospel. And this can be yours by faith. Let's move on. Something else was accomplished by the gospel. This is our third point. The righteousness and justice of God is vindicated in the gospel. The righteousness and justice of God is vindicated in the gospel. Uh, Second half of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, even though we all deserved it, God's wrath was actually not poured out upon us the moment that we first sinned. If we look back through the Old Testament scriptures, there were many instances of God's people who sinned and they did not fully receive the wrath of God poured upon them. The text says that in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Sins committed before the cross, though there were some consequences for them, people did not receive their full punishment. Much evil would appear to be just not and dealt with. Every moment that a sinner is not brought to justice, something's not right. The universe is not in equilibrium. It violates our our sense of justice that we innately have. The proper and right thing is that sinners would be punished for their sin, right? So if God did not carry out his wrath and his justice, he would not, in fact, be righteous at all. So how is it that God can just pass over sin? Can a holy God just overlook or disregard sin? Now to an observer, they might question the righteousness of God at this point. God, where is your justice? When will sinners be brought to justice for their sin? How could a just God let people get away with evil? These are great questions. You know, just last week, some of the folks from church had the opportunity to participate in campus evangelism at San Jose State. Paul Badia and I teamed up and we were able to talk to a pair of students there who told us that while they believed and they agreed that there is a God and that people have sinned against him, they believed that God was okay with it. That God does see our sin, but he's okay with it and he doesn't have a penalty or a punishment for it. He just overlooks our sin. Or to borrow the phrase from our text tonight, he passes over it. We made the point that if we were in a divine courtroom and God were the perfect judge presiding over the cases in that courtroom, would God be a good and just judge if he did not find sinners guilty? If we're the sinner, we might think so. What if we're the victim? Will we still think that God is just if the sinner was not found guilty and let go scot-free? Even if their sin was clear, obvious, and undeniable? No. A righteous and just God can't just overlook sin. He must punish sin. Otherwise, we would call him unrighteous or unjust. How could we call someone righteous if he disregards and does not uphold or enforce his own standards? 
Does God leave sin unpunished? No, not permanently. But he does punish sin. He punishes sin and pours out his wrath on the substitute. And by doing so, he vindicates his own righteousness and his justice. You see, all that sin is punished. For a believer, all your sin is punished, and it is punished at Calvary. For those who deny Christ, who do not have faith in Christ, that wrath, that judgment, it's still coming. Either way, God's justice will be served. The righteousness of God, you see, is not only shown in our salvation, but in the consistency and rightness of God to punish and not compromise on his holiness. At the cross, he punished sin. His wrath is poured out against sin, and the accounts of those who put their faith in Christ are all settled, past, present, future. God punished sin at the cross, thus upholding or vindicating his own justice. The cross proves to us that he does not overlook sin, so that now on this side of the cross, we can say that he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Not only just, because then we would all be burning in hell right now, but just and the justifier, meaning that we were rescued, we were saved, we were made right. That divine tension is resolved and satisfied in the gospel so that we can praise God without pretense that he is just, he is holy, uncompromising on goodness and purity, and we can also praise him and thank him that he is the justifier, loving, kind, and merciful. Through the cross, the justice and holiness of God are present. There is no hypocrisy or conflict in the character of God. And praise God that he's wiser than us that the gospel is a reality and all things are resolved in Christ for those who believe. Now, maybe just a few words of application before we close. The scriptures are very clear that we receive salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Now, in order to cling to Christ in faith, we must let go of the other means we seek to achieve righteousness. Christ calls us to turn away from the things in which we find our confidence that we put our faith and our hope in. Paul did this. If you guys can turn to Philippians 3 for a moment. Philippians 3. And we're reading verses 4 through 11. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul counted all of his sources of confidence as rubbish, disregarded them so that he could lay hold of what was promised in Christ. He made an exchange. He gave up what is rubbish, what is worthless, for what is certain. There's an old hymn titled Rock of Ages. The third verse of this hymn begins with these words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We cannot cling to the cross if we're still grasping something else in our hands. Now, not many of you know this, but a number of years ago before I knew pretty much everyone here, um, I almost drowned during a rafting trip. I was whitewater rafting with a group of friends from a college Christian fellowship when our raft got snagged on some rocks and we got stuck right before this big drop. Now we couldn't free the raft or get it dislodged, so eventually we gave up and started evacuating the raft until it was only two people left, myself and the raft guide. But since everyone else had exited the raft, it lightened enough to free itself from the rocks and the two of us went tumbling over the drop and the force of hitting the water threw me out of the raft and into the rapids. Now, while I was being tossed around like a rag doll, water was just flying everywhere. I managed to see the raft and spot the raft and I grabbed onto some rope that was strung along the side of the raft. And I hung onto that rope handle for dear life. But then I saw the raft guide reach over the side, reaching out to help me back to safety. But there was a problem. In order to be rescued, I had to let go of my handle. So I let go of the handle and our raft guide pulled me out of the rapids and back into the raft, back to safety. Now many of us are still in many ways clinging to handles, boasting in them even. Things that make us feel safe, things that we're good at, things that make us comfortable, but things that ultimately prevent us from clinging to Christ. When Christ calls us, he calls us to leave behind everything else that we might place our confidence in and instead put our faith in him. That's what faith is. We put ourselves at the mercy of and in the care of someone outside ourselves. We're essentially relinquishing control. We are taking our hands off the steering wheel and leaving our lives and souls in the hands of our gracious Savior. Let's pray. Father God, how wonderful the truths of the gospel, Lord, that yes, it is true. We are hopeless. We have no hope in ourselves to achieve righteousness all our good works, all our attempts are like filthy rags and don't accomplish any righteousness, Lord. And we're deserving of your wrath. And yet, Father, in your mercy and in your goodness and your grace, you've given us a gift 
a great cost, not to us, but to yourself, that we might be redeemed, that we might be justified, that we might be declared righteous and given a righteousness that is not our own, but someone else's, but that we would not have to face your wrath, Lord. For that, we're grateful. We know that not everybody has received this gift through faith, Lord. So I pray for those who have not received the gift of righteousness through faith, Lord. Pray that they would be convicted of their sin, convicted of their need, and that it's not okay to be at the mercy uh, and to be under the wrath of God. But it is entirely different, Lord, to be at the mercy and the care of a God who wants to save So, Father, I just pray that for those of us who do have this salvation, that it would make us thankful, that it would overflow with joy in our hearts, Lord, that all the things that you do desire are our desires too. So thank you, Father, for this and for these truths in the book of Romans. And I just pray for a continued study in this book, Lord, that it may even deepen our appreciation for this wonderful gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.